we're in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11. You guys ready to get back into the book of Revelation? All right. How many would say you had a great day today? All right. How many would be bold enough to say you just had a really bad day? All right. Appreciate the honesty. So how about, how about you that says it was neither an awesome day or a terrible day. It was somewhere in between. Okay. That's pretty good. Well, let's pray and ask that the Lord meets us right where we're at. Father, we thank you that you're present with us. And Lord, days, they, they go quick and they're very different. They're varied. Some, some are great. Lord, some are terrible. And Lord, we do pray for those that are having a difficult day, that you administer their hearts and encourage them. And we come tonight longing to hear your voice. We know that you're our good shepherd. And would you speak to us through the power of your word? We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where are we in the book of Revelation? It's been a few weeks, and we are in the midst of the trumpet judgments. So there's the seal judgments in the book of Revelation that lead to seven trumpets, and we are in the seventh trumpet uh, tonight, which then leads to seven bull judgments, and then the second coming of Jesus Christ. So once again, think of dominoes. And so the first domino is you have the seal judgments, and then those set off the trumpets, and then the trumpets, the, the bull judgments, and we know it's leading to the second coming of Jesus Christ. The theme of chapter 11 is that Jesus is almighty, that he rules over all things and has his hand upon all things. And that's what we focus on in the seventh trumpet, that 24 elders, the angels, they ascribe to God, they ascribe to Jesus that he is almighty. This is a colorful chapter as it does touch on the temple that will be built in the future and also two witnesses that God raises up during this uh, time period. So let's begin our journey in verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. The end of chapter 10, John was encouraged to eat the little book, to eat the small book. After he ate this book, then his stomach was bitter, but his mouth was sweet. So it was this combination of sweet and bitter. And then God speaks to him at the end of chapter 10 and says, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So in a sense, John is being asked to eat or digest the message that he's giving, these prophecies that he's giving. And there's a sweetness to these prophecies because it's pointing to Christ's return, but it's bitter because it also involves God's judgment He's encouraged, don't stop. You need to keep speaking this message. You need to keep speaking these prophecies to peoples, nations, and tongues. Then he's given a reed in this vision. Uh, So you picture a reed, and it's it's a measuring rod. And he's encouraged to to rise and measure uh, the temple of God. I wear size 12 shoes. If you're wondering, they're not size 14, though they may look like it. So I use my shoes as a measuring rod. Sometimes you'll see me at Home Depot doing this. And I'm counting how many feet uh, based on the size of of my shoes. And so this reed is used to measure the the temple uh, of God. First, we have to stop and pause. Well, there's a temple because you know today 
When you go to the Temple Mount, there's no temple that's there. The temple has been destroyed. So there will be another temple that will be built. And there's much prophecy about this future temple because the Antichrist, as we'll see in later studies, is going to come in and desecrate the temple. So let's get a quick review of the history of the temple. The first temple was Solomon. He built the temple on the the temple mount, Mount Zion, there in Jerusalem. It was a big deal to build the temple. David had wanted to build the temple, but God said no because he was a man of war, and Solomon's able to build uh, the temple. Then because of Israel's sin over generations, hundreds of years, God punishes the nation of Israel destroys the temple, and they're taken captive to Babylon. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple, and this is the second temple that was built. Herod comes along in the time of Jesus and does a mass renovation and expansion of the temple. And some consider that to be the third temple, but really it's the expansion and renovation of the second temple. And then AD 70, Titus, the Roman general, comes in and destroys the temple. And there hasn't been a temple there on the the Temple Mount to uh, this day. There's a group in Jerusalem of Orthodox Jews that are called the Temple Institute. And they're getting everything ready to build another temple. Why is the temple so important for the Orthodox Jew? Because in the Old Testament, which they hold to, says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They have no place to offer sacrifices, so they're in a quandary. They're wanting the temple to be rebuilt. And so the temple is going to be rebuilt. We, we don't know exactly how that's going to all come to pass, but sometime in the future it will come to pass. And here he's encouraged to go measure the temple, the altar, and also those who are worshiping there are noted at, at the temple. In verse 2 But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it's been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city for 42 months. So in measuring the temple, he's not to measure the court of the Gentiles. That's not going to be part of of this, this temple. And the reason for that is because it's been given over uh, to the the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are then given permission to tread on Jerusalem, the holy city, for 42 months. So this has caused some people to try to unpuzzle or unpack the the quandary of the the Temple Mount. And you might be saying, well, well, what quandary is that? The Dome of the Rock has been built on, on the Temple Mount. And what the Muslims claim is that they built the Dome of the Rock right on the Holy of Holies. But then there's some archaeologists that say, no, they just went on a whim, and that's not exactly the Holy of Holies. In fact, they built the Dome of the Rock on the court of Gentiles. So some think that at some point they'll come and you'll have the temple right next to uh, the Dome of the Rock. Now, we don't know. Obviously, we don't know. God in his infinite wisdom can deal with the Dome of the Rock. Amen? Right? You know, so he can, he can set the stage however he wants to be able to, to build uh, the temple. There's no way that Israel's just going to build the temple anywhere. They're, they're not going to build the temple in New York City. That would be blasphemy. God, God gave this land and this place, and they're going to put the temple on Mount, Mount Zion. So th- that's one possibility of why God says to not measure the court. But the real reason is because it's given over to the Gentiles, and there's going to be this time of the Gentiles 
where the Gentiles or non-Jewish people are given permission to trample Jerusalem. In Luke 21, verse 24, Jesus said this, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So in this judgment and God judging nations and setting things right, there's a period of time where the Gentiles, uh, non-Jewish people, are, are able to go in and trample Jerusalem until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus when Jesus rules and reigns over all. 42 months is how long? Uh, three and a half years, right? 24 months, we got that one. That, that's two years. I had to think about that a little bit today in my office. But 42 months, they're given three and a half years to trample Jerusalem. And here's the interesting part now with the two witnesses. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So during this crazy time of judgment where you have the seals and you've got the trumpets leading into the bulls and the time of the Gentiles, God raises up two witnesses to proclaim his message. And these two witnesses, these two guys, are going to get the intention of the whole entire world. As we'll see, they're going to die a martyr's death, and the whole world is paying attention as they're being martyred. And they have a specific period of time that they're going to be allowed to minister, 1,260 days, which again is roughly three and a half years. It's 3.45, but we'll call it three and a half years, right? And God is raising up these witnesses to proclaim uh, his, his message. So we learn more about these witnesses. They're clothed in sackcloth. Right now, old is in. You know what I'm saying? Like, everybody wants to grow gardens and have chickens and get back to raw materials, and it's pretty cool, right? So these guys are like hipsters that are fully in. They're in sackcloth, and they're just walking around, getting everybody's attention, proclaiming Jesus, and proclaiming uh, God's, God's message. They had quite the Twitter feed and Instagram, these two witnesses. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Write down Zechariah chapter 4, because in Zechariah chapter 4, we see this imagery of two olive trees with pipelines to the lampstands, and then God says, it's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What God is communicating in verse 4 about the two witnesses and tying them to the two olive trees and the lampstands is their ministry is going to be one that's empowered by the Spirit. It's going to be a supernatural work of God where God pours out his Spirit upon these two witnesses to proclaim God's message. They have God's protection in verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. So God's protection and an ability to call down fire from heaven. Sounds like a Marvel movie, but it's the two witnesses that God has raised up. Verse 6, these have power to shut heaven. So shutting down rain so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over water to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues so often as they desire. So there's been a lot of speculation on who are the two witnesses. The Bible doesn't tell us. So we can't say dogmatically, 
But we can make a good guess, and it sure sounds a lot like Moses and Elijah, doesn't it? Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Elijah praying that it wouldn't rain, and God honoring that prayer. Moses, of course, in his ministry, turning the water to blood with the plagues upon, upon Egypt. Some interesting things about Moses and Elijah. One is Elijah never died. He got caught up to heaven in the chariots of fire. Also on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah visited Christ. Moses did die, but they never found his body. And there was a battle between Michael the archangel and Satan over his body. And also Moses shows up on the Mount of of Transfiguration. So it could be God saying, boom, here's Moses and Elijah coming on the scene in the end times to be my messenger. Or it could be two other people, two other random dudes that God raises up that have a Moses and Elijah-like ministry. There is a prophecy in Malachi 4, verse 5. It says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. If I was a betting man, I would say Moses and Elijah, but we don't know for sure. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So when their testimony is done, and that's encouraging, even though things are so dark, and there's this demonic influence, there's the Antichrist, There's Satan, yet God's in control. He's the Almighty, and so they're not going to die until their testimony's finished. When the days are done, and they're three and a half years, 1,260 days, and then boom, here comes the beast out of the bottomless pit and makes war against them, overcomes them, and and kills them. Notice the, the response, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So they just leave their bodies. Don't even have the decency to, to bury their bodies. Just leave them on the streets to be a, a, a spectacle. The great city, which is Jerusalem, spiritually is Sodom and Egypt. Sodom was known for their, their immorality towards God. Egypt was known for oppressing and bringing the people of God under slavery. And this is what Jerusalem had been come, become. Jerusalem's the only city that God claims for his own. Jerusalem is the only city that Jesus wept over and longed that the people would, would come, come to him. But yet we find Jerusalem in this dark place spiritually where the analogy is of, of Sodom and Egypt. And then it says we're also, by the way, this is where they crucified Jesus. So these two witnesses are, are killed and martyred in the same fashion in which Jesus was, was crucified. In verse 9, Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. So it's intentional. They're intentionally not allowing them to be buried. And notice people from all over the world are watching their bodies decay in the streets of Jerusalem. Peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. Their message is so profound and their message is so hated that the world is rejoicing and watching when they're killed. 
Now, for generations, reading this verse, you'd go, how in the world would peoples, tribes, and tongues all be able to see this taking place at the same time? But now, this is our reality, isn't it? The world can watch an event uh, take place. We see some things this week that prove that point with the boys that were in the cave in Thailand and were rescued and, the, and their coach. The world was literally watching as that event was, was taking place. I guess the World Cup is happening. Is there any soccer fans out there? But the World Cup is huge internationally. And, and the world is watching as, as this is taking place. And I, if I have my facts straight, I'm not, don't quote me on this, but I think it's France and England that are going to be playing in the, in the final. Did I get it right? Croatia. Croatia beat England? Wow, we do have some soccer fans. So, so the world is watching the World Cup, but apparently I'm not. <laughs> but the world can really tune in, can't they, to, to what, is, what is taking place. And you see TV coming along and bringing the, this visual in where, where, okay, now in the air of the TV, you could see everything taking place. But now in the time of the internet, so much more so the world could, could be watching. Remember what God's agenda is. What, what's God up to? He's into reaching the nations. In the past, the present, and the future. And so he's getting his message to all of the people groups through these two witnesses. Notice their spiritual response in verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who were on the earth. They do full on Christmas because the two prophets are dead. There's like, oh, you, you always wanted a, a new this or a new that. So here's Starbucks gift cards. The two prophets are dead. You know, I, I wrapped this up for you because we don't have to be tormented anymore. And, and this is the response of the whole world. And they, they're making merry. They're like, hey, we're having a barbecue over at our house. Because these knuckleheads that tormented us with the truth, they're, they're dead. And they're no longer going to torment us any longer. And we are starting to see this attitude towards the truth, right? People don't want to hear the truth. And they say, we're living in a tolerant society, but the only thing that we can't tolerate is your view. And your view uh, uh, upon, upon the world. And so we see how dark it is at the time of these Two witnesses. In verse 11, now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear on, fell on those who saw them. So the world's watching on live stream. They're all on their cute little Facebook accounts with the, the live stream feed. And there it is, three and a half days, the two witnesses are starting to decay. And then God breathes life back into them. And I like how this reads because it says the breath of life from God. Each, each of us have the, the breath of life from God. And, and God returns this to the two witnesses. And they stood to their feet. And now all of a sudden, all of the partying gets quiet. All the gift giving get, gets quiet. And they go, what in the world is going on here? We think about being witnesses and declaring who God is and what he's done in our lives. And there is opposition. And it could ultimately mean that we lose our lives. But is that the last word? 
When a Christian is martyred, is that the last word? No. That Christian is going to rise again, a literal resurrection to eternal life. And these witnesses rise. In verse 12, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies saw them. So, so the whole world watches this take place. I want you to ponder this with me for just a moment. God is faithful to raise up witnesses in dark times. God's faithful to raise up witnesses in dark times. Elijah was a witness of God, a prophet of God, in a very dark time spiritually. Jeremiah spoke the message of God as Israel was rejecting the Lord. We don't see one convert in Jeremiah's ministry, but he was a faithful light in in a dark time. John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, it was dark. It was 400 years of silence from God. From the book of Malachi to John the Baptist's ministry, no prophet spoke. Can you imagine the words of John the Baptist when he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? These two witnesses is God's final example of his ability to raise up his messengers against all odds. God was able to do it with two guys in sackcloth. Two guys in sackcloth and his power. And they work in the supernatural power of God and the whole world's attention is drawn just because of these two witnesses. Sometimes we forget our mission here on earth. It's not to be comfortable. It's not necessarily to be satisfied. But it's to know God and make him known. Jesus said, go and preach the gospel and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. We're on mission. Our lives have purpose to declare testimony. What has God done in your life? How has he been faithful? How has he saved you and brought him to to yourself? Be willing and be ready to share the good news of Jesus Christ because that's when God's Holy Spirit is poured out onto our lives. A lot of times we want God's Spirit for our comfort or our peace and God's faithful to do that but the real purpose of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit shall come upon you so you shall be my witnesses. That our life can be a testimony of, of Jesus Christ that so we can declare, declare the goodness of God. So God raising up these two witnesses an encouragement to us as well that he can raise us up to, to be a witness in a, a dark time. In verse 13, in that same hour there was a great earthquake and the tenth of the city fell. So God is dealing with Jerusalem. Jerusalem's getting trampled on for 42 months And now there's an earthquake that falls upon Jerusalem and a tenth of the city falls. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God of heaven. God gets the attention of Jerusalem. In Zechariah 12 and also Zechariah 14, there's interesting prophecies of the nation of Israel asking Jesus at his second coming, where did you get those wounds? And he says, in the house of my friends. And it's at that point that the nation of Israel acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah. There's many Jews have have become messianic, if you would, but as a whole country and as a nation, Israel still has rejected Christ. God's working on Israel. He's giving them this earthquake and saying, I want your attention. And they respond. 
and they give glory to God. And there's a lot of times in the book of Revelation where we don't see that. God works powerfully, supernaturally, and instead they harden their hearts towards the Lord. In verse 14, it says, the second woe is past. So we've seen two woes that have taken place, and behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And here is the seventh trumpet that is sound. We have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowl judgments. Then the seventh angel sounded. Through this seventh trumpet, we're also brought into the finality of God's judgment that will take place all the way to chapter 16 and end in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And for this seventh trumpet to be sounded, it is very dramatic. And the seventh trumpet brings in the seven bull judgments. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the angels, the voices, they know exactly what this is about, and this is Jesus coming and putting all of the kingdoms of men underneath his feet. And there's many prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the kingdoms of men being under the kingdoms of God. In Daniel 2, verse 44, it says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. In the book of Daniel, we see all these crazy visions, and these visions represent the different kingdoms of men, and they all lead up to Jesus Christ ruling and reigning forever. The first coming of Jesus, Jesus came as a suffering servant to be our Savior. But as the second coming, he's going to put all the kingdoms underneath his rule and in his reign. In Zechariah 14, verse 9, it says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day it shall be the Lord is one, and his name one. When we're studying the book of Revelation, there's, there's differing views on the timing of the rapture. But all are consistent in the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that he's going to rule and reign over, over all things. And I don't want you to miss that tonight. God will be faithful to set up his kingdom over the kingdom of men. Over the kingdom of men. And I can't wait, right? That's going to be wonderful. Because we see the kingdom of men and it's full of greed and full of lust and anger and, and murder. And we mess things up time, time and time again. No system is, is perfect. And it's going to be great for not man to lead, not for man to be in charge, but for Jesus to be our king and for him to rule and reign literally upon, upon this earth. We see the kingdoms of men from history. We see the kingdoms of men from, from our day. Uh, we look at Iran. We look at North Korea. We look at China. We look at Russia. We look at our government, right? And we go, Jesus, come quickly. Right? Sort, sort out this mess. We can't wait for you to be the one who is ruling and, and who, is, who is reigning. You know, we look at the chaos of our own lives and the challenges of our own lives and to look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is what we long for. This is what we, we wait for. Christ is going to come. He's going to return, and all things are going to be placed underneath his feet. 
how much of our days is spent reflecting on this truth and, and this reality where we go, man, Jesus, you're coming. Jesus, you're gonna, you're gonna make all things right. I'm looking forward to it. I know you're looking forward to it as well. In verse 16, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped. So the response to Jesus coming in judgment, him said, making everything right, is the 24 elders, they bow down and they fall on their faces and they, they worship God. And God's judgment is something that is fearful, it's something that's awe-inspiring, but it's just and it's good. And when we see God's judgment coming upon humanity, there's gonna be a response in us that says this is good and this is right. If God is good and he is the ultimate authority, at some point he has to hold evil in accountability. He has to bring that just judgment for the evil that has, has taken place. The 24 elders, as they see God, they see his justice, they see his beauty, they see every attribute of who he is, they fall and they worship. They worship the Lord. An understanding of God, a knowledge of God and worship go hand in hand. You know, if I'm struggling to worship, I'm probably struggling to see God for who he is. But in those times when I'm understanding who God is, that he's my father, that he's gracious, that he's kind, that he's just, that he is the, the coming king, then that moves me to, to the place of worship. When we look at the Bible as a whole, Genesis to Revelation, worship is really important because what you worship defines you. You become like what you worship and you're created to worship. You're gonna worship something or, or someone. And if it's not the Lord, then we're gonna start to become like that. We become like what we worship. When we see Romans chapter one, when God describes really the downward degeneration of a soul, one of the aspects that causes our soul to slip into immorality is to be unthankful, to not glorify God as God. Another way to put that is worship. A lot of times in our lives we think, well, I've got a marriage problem. No, I don't have a marriage problem. I have a worship problem. Well, you know, I, I'm having problems over here with my kids. I, I've got a problem with my employer. I've got a, a problem with my church, the, the, the body of Christ. I, I've got a problem with Academy Boulevard or the road construction that's taking place. And really, I have a worship problem. And I'm not saying that when we worship, difficulties go away. But what I'm saying, when, when I'm worshiping, I'm getting my soul aligned in the right direction and the purpose that God's, God's intended. I'm falling on my face before him, singing to him, praising, offering my life as, as a living sacrifice, then things come into view. We go, well, maybe my spouse isn't doing all that they should do, or maybe they're, they're falling short. I know that I fall short too. God, I just want to serve you. So, so I want to be a blessing to my spouse, whether they're doing their part or not. I want to love my kids unconditionally, whether they're having a good day or a bad day. Okay, Lord, here I am with my boss, and you know my boss, but I'm here to work for you. Does that make sense? So these 24 elders, they've got it figured out. They're, they're, they're worshipers. And it seems like those that enjoy the abundant life of Christ, they're worshipers. They, they long to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. When we see God, worship flows out of the knowledge of God. In verse 17, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. 
They ascribe to God this title, Almighty. It means the one who has his hand on everything, that he rules over all things, that he's all-powerful. Nine out of ten times this word is used in the New Testament is in the book of Revelation. So it's only used ten times in the New Testament, and nine of them are in the book of Revelation. That Jesus, you're almighty, you rule over all, and you have your hand on all things. And that takes faith, doesn't it? Because sometimes we don't see God's hand on all things. We don't see how God is ruling over all. Uh, We try to process Job's experience with our own pain and suffering and go, God, why did you allow this in Job's life? And what's God's answer to Job at the end of the book? Because I'm God, right? And where were you when I did this, 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 and this? In essence, God is saying, hey, who are you to question what I do? We hear that ascribed who has been God's counselor. We've all tried. It's like, God, I've, I've really tried to be your counselor. But at the end of the day, he's God and we're not. And his hand is present. And he is almighty. And he, he is working in, in our lives. And as we study the book of Revelation, we can have confidence that God does rule and reign. And that God is going to set things right. And that Jesus is going to return. So press into that this evening. Be thankful that the Lord is almighty. He's the one who is and was and is to come. This speaks of his eternal nature and his consistent nature. He, he was, but he also is, and he is to come. Everything changes in our lives. Nothing is certain, but the character and nature of Christ is certain. Continuing in verse 17, because you have taken your great power and reigned. You've taken your proper place. They're thankful for the second coming of Christ. The nations were angry, at, and your wrath has come. So then the nations are, are vengeful towards Christ at this time. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So God is bringing his just judgment on those that were angry towards him and bringing reward upon his servants, prophets, and saints. Some may go to God and say, God, are, are you going to allow the believers in Nigeria just to be massacred? Are you going to stand up to, on their, our defense? Are, are they just going to be able to, to get away with murdering your, your children? And God's answer is no. God says that they're going to be held accountable for murdering my children, and God's going to reward his, his servants. So if there's those things in your life where you say, man, it sure seems like this evil somebody got away with. No, God is the judge. Vengeance is the Lord. He, he's going to take care of things. There is going to come that time for judgment. You know, I think it's sobering when we think about our own country because one of, the, one of the traits that we find often in Scripture is to think too highly of yourself. And I'm so thankful for the United States of America. And I'm so glad to be an American. And I'm thankful for the freedom that we have. But also from a spiritual sense, I'm not sure if there's a more perverted and twisted nation in the world. And at some point, we've got to answer for our wickedness. For God to be just, for our culture and our nation, there's a reality that says, 
we promote wickedness as a society. When we go into a country, what we tell them is a message that is completely contrary to God. And I'm not speaking as the church, but I'm speaking that's our message as a country. We, we, we do things like, hey, let, let's make sure that you fund abortions. Well, let's make sure that you fund a, a homosexual lifestyle. Let's make sure that you, and we, we have all of these things that are complete uh, ungodliness. And we think of Jerusalem being called Sodom and Jerusalem being called Egypt. How about the United States of America? And to say, you know what, man, there's a great need for repentance. And there's great need for revival in our country. But it seems like that apart from repentance, apart, apart from God really waking us up is we're, we're heading towards God's judgment as, as a r- rapid pace, you know? And so, Lord, come quickly and may we repent. May we take seriously what, what the Lord says. How is God gonna hold our own leaders accountable, you know? Sometimes I think as we read the scriptures, we go, well, the United States just gets off the hook. You know, the, the United States is not gonna be held accountable to God because because we're the United States of America, and, and in God we trust, and, and God's going, no. You know, you, you were given all this prosperity, you were given all this influence, and, and this is how you used it, and you used it contrary to, to, to my name, and so that there's, there's great need for God to, to move, and, and we know that God wants to, to bring revival, and he wants to bring uh, restoration, but it is a sobering thing to, to think of the nations being held accountable before the Lord and there being that time of, of judgment. In verse 19, then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there was lightning, noises and thunder and earthquake and great hail. So this is a very significant event of the seventh trumpet and then the temple of God opens in heaven. So not the temple on earth, the Ark of the Covenant is seen in, in his temple, and there's lightning, noises, and thunder, and then this brings in the seven uh, bull judgments. I know this can be really terrifying, uh, but imagine the world going on without God's judgment, and it all leads to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It all leads to Christ ruling and reigning, and that brings us great hope. So what's the application for us tonight? The first is, like the two witnesses, through the power of the Spirit, may we faithfully proclaim who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. A simple prayer as we go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow, God, I want to be used by you. Is there someone that you would put in my path today that I could proclaim your goodness to? To to look at life that way as an adventure. You know, the fun thing about short-term missions trips, if you go to Mexico or Peru or Uganda, is you go with an expectation that God's going to use me and an availability. You say, Lord, I'm available and desiring that you'd use me. And we can be on mission trip in our own lives. It's the best place to be on mission trip. Say, Lord, what do you have for me today? I want to be used by you. I want to proclaim the goodness of God. You know, I've shared with you a, a few times before that sharing the gospel one-on-one with people is terrifying for me, right? It's like, it's easier for me to share the gospel in a setting like this because this is not a conversation, right? I just get to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and then say, Lord bless you. And then if you get mad, you send me an email or wait for me after service. And, you know, 
But if I'm sitting down with somebody, just just one-on-one, and I'm sharing the gospel with them, I get 10 times more nervous than I do up here, you know? I don't know why, but I do, right? And sometimes there's that God-given opportunity to, to share, and I get, I get nervous until God's opening a door. I'm trying to decide, am I going to take the opportunity, or am I going to keep my mouth closed? And sometimes I take the opportunity, sometimes I keep my mouth closed. Uh, last week, I think it was last Wednesday, I had to get some new tires on the car, and they were they were toast, and I was like, okay, the mechanic's like, the next place you go is you got to get tires. I'm like, okay, so I go get tires, and it's this young guy, and I start talking to him, and he starts talking sports with me, because uh, I was wearing my Denver Broncos hat, and he's like, well, I was gonna, gonna give you a good deal, but then I saw your Broncos hat. He was a, he was a Raiders fan, and so we start talking sports a little bit, and then he says, oh, I don't really watch sports anymore because I like using all my time when I'm not at work to read. And so he says, well, what do you like to read? And he says, well, I'm reading all of this Eastern mysticism and, and meditation and yoga, and that, I've really just been reading that, you know. And right then, I could feel the Holy Spirit saying, ask him if he's read the Bible, right? And so he, in my perspective, I was like, now I could play it the kind of cool guy with the Broncos hat, or I can let it out that I'm a follower of Jesus. And we can go there, right, and just see what, what God would do. So I, I, I said, hey, man, have you ever, have you ever read the Bible? And, and he goes, yeah, I've read them all. The Bible, the, the Book of Mormon, the Koran, I, I read them all. And then, no joke, the phone rang, and the conversation was over, and he was busy with customers in the phone the rest of the time. And I don't, I don't know if that's ever going to go anywhere, but I just know that the Holy Spirit said, Ask him if he's read the Bible, right? And the Holy Spirit is all about this. So, so the Holy Spirit will give us the power, the direction, the guidance, and all we have to do is say yes. Love people. Look them in the eye. Talk to them. And then as you're in conversation with them, follow the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not minister to two people the same way. Isn't that exciting? He did not have a formula of how to love and reach people. He was following the leading of the Holy Spirit. He was giving us an example of what a spirit-filled life was. I mean, some of the stuff that Jesus did is far out. Like, talk about some courage. Like, spitting on the ground with a blind guy and making a mud pie and then sticking it in his eyes, right? And say, go wash and, 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 and you'll, you'll be healed. I mean, the poor blind guy, he hears Jesus hawking a loogie and then there's saliva with dirt on his eyes, Right? But that's what the father told him to do. So, so he, he was, he was going to do it. And God doesn't want to minister to two people the same way. And, and a lot of times we don't see that God could use our life. We don't believe that he can. But it's about God's desire to reach people, not our talents or our abilities. And so if God can raise up the two witnesses, he can raise up us as well. And people are a lot more hungry for the Lord than we realize and then the other application, the Almighty, the one who has his hands on everything. He rules over all. He's, he's returning, and he will rule over the ki- kingdoms of men. And that's what we look forward to when he makes all things right. The second coming of Jesus Christ is awe-inspiring, but it shouldn't cause us as believers to be fearful. It should cause us great rejoicing to go, God, you're almighty, and you're going to make things right. So let's apply this message with worship. As Billy and Jared come back out and lead us in worship, 
Let's just take our time and enjoy time with the Lord, enjoy communion, and to worship him for who he is and proclaim his death till he comes. Part of communion is proclaiming his death till he comes in faith saying, Jesus, I believe that you're gonna come and I believe that you're gonna make all things right. So let's pray together. Jesus, sometimes we get overwhelmed by how dark our culture is. It seems that many don't want to have a relationship with you. But Lord, we know you're working. We know people are hungry for you. And afresh, we want to say yes to your mission to bring people to yourself. So would you give us a fresh awareness and willingness to share the gospel, to be involved in people's lives, We ask for a a fresh filling of the the Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would would say to us, people in our lives that you want us to spend time with and to speak to and to to share. Lord, we don't want communion to just be ritual or old hat, but Jesus, we come to spend time with you. You are our suffering servant, our God, our King. You're the one who's gonna come back and rule and reign. You're the Almighty. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.